Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurie Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Marcus Kolga. I'm a senior fellow at MLI. Today, I'm joined by Michael Weiss. Over the next 30 minutes, we're going to look at Russian propaganda, disinformation, and influence operations, how it's evolved over the past decade, what it looks like, why they do it, and the risks of countering it. Here in Canada, we've been slow to recognize the threat of Russian disinformation, despite repeated warnings from our national intelligence agencies and those in allied states, NATO, and our Five Eyes partners. A report by Canada's all-party Parliamentary National Security and Intelligence Committee released in March warned that foreign interference in Canada has received minimal media and academic coverage and is not part of wider public discourse. It continues stating that, quote, this has resulted in the assumption that foreign interference is not a significant problem in Canada. Before last year's federal election, Minister Karina Gould took initial steps to protect it against foreign interference, measures that have since been largely abandoned. Despite the volumes of obvious evidence that demonstrates the threat that foreign interference poses to our entire democracy and society, the Canadian government has chosen to ignore the threat as one that is primarily linked to the ebbs and flows of election cycles. During the COVID pandemic, we've been warned that the Chinese, Russian, and Iranian governments are spreading disinformation about the origins of the virus and other myths that could be putting Western societies at risk. And with the coming U.S. presidential election, there are concerns that the Kremlin and other foreign regimes may try to affect the outcome again. Our guest, Michael Weiss, has been analyzing and writing about disinformation long before the term fake news was introduced into the vernacular and when we were still talking about hybrid warfare. In 2014, Michael, along with Peter Pomerantsev, published a groundbreaking study on Russian foreign disinformation titled The Menace of Unreality, which should be the starting point for anyone seeking to understand Russian information warfare. In it, Michael wrote that, quote, one of the stranger aspects of 21st century geopolitics has been the West's denials that it has an adversary or enemy in Vladimir Putin. Whether out of wishful thinking, naivete, or cynicism, a useful myth was cultivated over the last 14 years, namely that the United States and Europe had an honest partner or ally in the Kremlin, no matter how often the latter behaved as if the opposite were true. Canada is no exception to this. Where our officials are avoiding saying the name of Sergei Magnitsky when speaking of our Magnitsky legislation, and who have warned that identifying foreign governments that engage in information warfare is unhelpful. Michael is currently the Director of Special Investigations for the Free Russia Foundation and is a Senior Editor at The Daily Beast. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Marcus. Right off the top, I'd like to get your quick take on some of the revelations published in John Bolton's new book. Among them that Vladimir Putin compared Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido to 2016 Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton in a call with Donald Trump, which apparently persuaded Trump that he was backing the wrong guy in Venezuela. Any surprises for you in what you've seen in this? Well, it's almost too easy, isn't it? I mean, um, hats off to Putin. You know, he was a KGB case officer and he was taught well how to read people, how to break them down psychologically and also cater to their, uh, shall we say, vices and shortcomings of which this president uh, does not lack. Yeah, look, I mean, it, it, it's almost absurd, right? Uh, the, the Venezuelan opposition leader who is a social democrat, I think uh, his party is a member in good standing of the Socialist International that this is like Hillary Clinton, and that's going to cool Donald Trump's jets when it comes to Maduro and his economic and, and narco trafficking crimes. You know, it's there's an expression in Russian, and, and this is actually Fiona Hill does this very well in her book on Putin, which is working with people, which has the connotation of, look, the Russian services are past masters at human intelligence. They, they really do study the psychology, 
the emotional vicissitudes of tradecraft in terms of cultivating and running and recruiting. I wrote a piece for the New York Review of Books about a year ago, probably more, saying, look, how do the Russians really see Donald Trump, somebody like Donald Trump? Because you had all of these allegations and, and speculation that he had been recruited when he went to Moscow in 1987. And, and you know, I, I queried a, a number of former hands on the Soviet Union and now on Russia at the CIA, one of which is a kind of a legendary figure called Burton Gerber, who I believe was the director of counterintelligence at, at Langley uh, during the Rick Ames crisis. Uh, and actually, Ames worked right under him, in fact. Anyway, Gerber was like, look, a guy like Donald Trump would never be recruited by the Russian services. He's too flamboyant. He's too unpredictable. His, his manner of speaking, his behavior, the narcissism, the megalomania, he would be the world's worst agent. But the way you would treat somebody like Donald Trump is somewhere between useful idiot and agent of influence, which is to say, and this is a very gray zone. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of the reporting at the height of the Mueller investigation got this wrong. This is not, hi, I'm from the KGB, you work for me now. This is, uh, you know, it's a game of flattery. It's a game of gaslighting and manipulation. And I, I think, yeah, somebody like Putin has a very easy time dealing with somebody like Donald. Trump. I mean, am, am I surprised John Bolton said that Trump is not up to the challenge in dealing with a formidable adversary like Putin? No, of course not. But it, it is worthwhile to hear this from a very dyed-in-the-wool, super conservative hawk who served for a year and a half as national security advisor and had the ear of the president almost every day of that tenure. Uh, coming from him, it's not quite like coming from the so-called resistance. It's not like hearing Rachel Maddow say it, right? So it's helpful. But then again, as others have pointed out, uh, day late and a do dollar short, John. I mean, where were you during the impeachment investigation? Or why didn't you come out sooner and say this? You've got five months till the U.S. election. That election is not going to hinge on anything to do with Russia. We'll probably hinge more on, well, certainly the COVID pandemic, the state of the economy. And as Steve Bannon put it in a very interesting interview with the Asia Times last week on China. So you can ask me if you want about the other big disclosure in, in that memoir by Bolton, which is that Trump was basically asking Xi, why don't you do me a solid and buy some soybeans from uh, agrarian swing states where, you know, you can help get me reelected and then we'll have a, a, a wonderful relationship, a bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China. And that's going to put a damper on Trump's campaign plank, which is Joe Biden is, is a hireling of Beijing. And also, I, I'm, I'm more curious, though, to see how this sets the cat among the pigeons with the Breitbart alt-right Bannonite wing of the Trump movement, right? Because Bannon, I mean, he is, he's, he, he basically says in that interview, I'm doing regime change. I'm working with Chinese opposition groups and Chinese industrialists to overthrow the Communist Party in Beijing. Well, there you go. I mean, <laughs> what, what now, Mr. President? I mean, you know. nope, very good point. Uh, but going back to the to the question of Russian information warfare and sort of the background to it, you, you mentioned that they've received a lot of practice. They've done this for quite some time. And as I mentioned earlier, along with Peter, you helped produce the foundation of what I believe is our general understanding of modern Russian disinformation and influence ops in the menace of unreality. So most people think of information warfare and influence operations as a new phenomenon, linked largely to the last presidential election. But its origins go way back to the Soviet era. So I'm hoping that you can explain for us a bit about this history and are there what are the similarities in what we're seeing today in the tactics the strategies and such well uh disinformation and propaganda i mean long predates the kgb and the the soviet services right but um the kgb really did put put a, a premium on trying to plant bits of 
falsehoods or half-truths, getting them circulating in the Western bloodstream. And the, the, the goal is very simple. It is to sow skepticism, doubt, conspiracy theories, and really divide the West uh, against itself, right? To, to allow for this sort of cannibalization of civilization. So your classic active measures, as they're called, would be that the CIA invented the AIDS virus as a way to depopulate Africa, which was a very powerful conspiracy theory, which to this day has some resonance. Former CIA officer and head of Russia House, John Seifer, said in an interview recently that he remembers in the 90s, I think, the president of Zimbabwe getting up and saying that his son or his son-in-law had contracted the AIDS virus. And this was going to be a very poignant and a seismic moment in Zimbabwean politics, and then followed up by saying, but as we all know, the Americans created this thing, right? So that, that's a successful active measure, perhaps the most successful one. Another famous one was the allegation that the CIA, it always comes back to the CIA, by the way, because that's, that's, that's really the main adversary for the KGB. Uh, the CIA assassinated John F. Kennedy. So the way this worked is the KGB recruited an Italian journalist to have this written up in some Italian newspaper, I forget which one, and it worked its way back all the way into the New Orleans prosecutor's office and became, you know, this set of alternative facts. Uh, and, and it got its, its fullest expression in, in popular cultural imagination in the Oliver Stone biopic JFK, right, where this was, uh, this was treated as a legitimate claim that, that actually the American government uh, assassinated its own president. So um, these things have been around for a long time. Now, the, the thing that I've noticed in recent years, and even going back to 2015, 2016, just as Donald Trump was securing the nomination for the Republican Party and then being elected president, more often than not, the services these days, they're, they're a bit lazy. Uh, what they're good at doing is not inventing whole cloth, these sort of elaborate conspiratorial tapestries, but rather finding idiots and lunatics and ideologues and cranks in the West who are saying these things and then just sticking a megaphone in front of their mouth or you know, amplifying our own homegrown nuttiness and and feeding it back to us. So, you know, I think I mentioned in the presentation we did last week for your institute, the, the only Kremlin or, or sort of SVR concocted conspiracy theory that I can find that, that really affected the 2016 election would have been the invention of, of the Seth Rich was the real source of the DNC leaks to WikiLeaks, right? Uh, this was reported by David Isakoff at Yahoo, who was a very good national security reporter. But that's really like the first and only time that I've seen this came directly from the Kremlin. Usually everything else, whether it's Pizzagate, Hillary Clinton and John Podesta indulging in satanic repast, all of these other things came from the alt-right. They came from Reddit threads and subthreads. Now, that's not to say that the rather danker precincts of the internet aren't also infiltrated and penetrated by Russian intelligence organs and, and operatives. There's a very good report that came out by Graphica called um, Operation Secondary Infection, which shows, and they don't know which service did this, was it the SVR, the FSB, the GRU, but showed that, that actually Russian bots and fake accounts, including burner accounts, which is a newfangled thing by me where, you know, you create like an avatar or like a Twitter personality and you put up one post and then you delete it. Uh, these things are way more rife than we had assumed. But the report also indicated that actually they're not all that efficacious, right? They didn't have much of a lasting impact. The point of these things is get it to go viral, get it to be picked up and taken as serious 
and legitimate by mainstream actors. Now, unfortunately, you have the case where, and this was in the Mueller report, a lot of these Russian-run troll bots, whatever you want to call them, were often retweeted and, and amplified by none other than the President of the United States when he was then candidate for president and his family members, such as Donald Trump Jr. You know, obviously, Roger Stone had a, a relationship or a communication stream with Guccifer 2.0, who we now know is just a, a cutout for the GRU. You know, and, and I noticed this with COVID too, as I said last week, it's it's about finding things in our own backyard, meaning the West's own backyard, that, you know, the weeds and, and, and as I say, homegrown pathogens. And just, again, cycling it back through like dirty air in an airplane, cycling it back through. So we have we, we keep being forced to to countenance things that should be consigned to the margins, but we don't because um, RT, Sputnik, and then just, you know, this, this cavalcade of semi-anonymous MAGA hat-wearing Twitter accounts keep pushing it back into our, our consciousness. So, you know, on the one hand, it's not very sophisticated. It's quite crude. But on the other hand, the, the real purpose is oversaturation, right? I mean, you know, the, the Russian intelligence services are exceptionally good at turning tactical defeats into strategic victories. I mean, they, my own book that I'm working on, which is a history of the GRU, shows that even when these guys get caught, and the cardinal rule of espionage is don't get caught, but even when they get caught, they turn it into a kind of playful game. Like, we didn't really do it, you can't prove it, but wink, nudge, we did do it and you know it. And and we've just now demonstrated just how vulnerable you are, how porous your society or your, your national security uh, apparatus is. Whether it's trying to hack the OPCW by actually dispatching cyber operatives to the OPCW, doing this out of the boot of a rented car in The Hague, or, you know, indeed, um, getting caught and identified by name rank and date of birth in the Mueller report as G as fancy bear operatives hacking the DNC and John Podesta's private email account. doesn't matter they got caught. The damage was already done. And then, of course, you have an, an added component to it, which is the conspiracy theories and counterfactual allegations about, oh, this is all, th this isn't true. The U.S. government is lying or the deep state has made up some rap sheet that doesn't uh, withstand scrutiny. So, you know, unfortunately, it's a lot of white noise but white noise can be deafening. And I think that's kind of the problem that we face. Certainly in America, I don't know the situation in Canada as well, but uh, you seem to think it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty dire there too. No, it's, 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 it's not great. And that's, you know, my question is, so then what's the relationship then with, you know, there are these conspiracy theory blogs and websites. Uh, and as you're mentioning, you know, the, these, whether it's state run media or, or, you know, other platforms that are very pro- Kremlin pro Putin, they're amplifying a lot of this stuff. And you know, what's the relationship there then with these these conspiracy theory sites? Are, is somebody coming up with this on their own? You know, you're, you're not saying that there's you know necessarily any collusion, but what does that look like? You get it whether you're, you're you're aware of it or not from Kremlin portals or or pro Kremlin outlets, right? So yeah, it's very easy for this to kind of come back around and to be recycled. And yeah, the the, the ultimate goal is get it in the mainstream because then the work that's required to kind of of retro engineer where it came from. It's so much more exhausting and painstaking than just having it out there. You know, it's the old saw that, you know, that a lie can make its way around the world before the truth even gets its boots on. It's very true. And as I say, you know, the Russians play this game better than, than most other countries, but this is now, you know, the toolkit of several foreign countries. The Saudis are doing the same thing. The Iranians, the Chinese, uh, the North Koreans, uh, it's it's hack and release. It's creating fake accounts and avatars all over social media. But really, I mean, if you if you want to be tutored in how to do it well, 
study the way the Russians do it. Right. Because it's cheap and it works. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the active measure I mentioned about the, the Kennedy assassination, think about what the work that went into that. First, you got to find a reporter, either recruit him as an active agent or just have him be ideologically on side. Maybe he's a fellow traveler back in the day of Soviet communism, or he doesn't like the cut of his own government's jib, whatever. Uh, and then you got to plant the story. That takes time. It takes weeks. It takes months. And then you got to hope that a, a story in an Italian newspaper gets translated into English and works its way back into the United States where it can do the most amount of damage. These days, any unemployable crank sitting in his mother's basement can write a piece for RT, click send, and then tweet it out, and then hope that, you know, a thousand and one conspiracy theory websites, whether it's Zero Hedge, which has just been uh, demonetized by Google, or um, in Canada, you have this global research outfit, which I don't know if they're like LaRoucheites or what the hell their story is, but I see them all over the place. I mean, and they always kind of, they act as this kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's like a, you know, an infinite regression. You know, it starts at global research, then it gets picked up by RT and Sputnik, and then, you know, maybe Breitbart or the Federalist picks it up, and then global research reports on what the Federalist has said. I mean, it's, it's the snake swallowing its own tail. Um, all of these things just contribute to a general, it's the, it's the vitiation of American media literacy and media savvy and consciousness. And unfortunately, there is a legitimate grievance about the way news is packaged and disseminated. Uh, and it's a grievance that, you know, not all pro-Trump people are wrong to point out. Of course, they've got the diagnosis wrong and they go way too far with it. And Donald Trump is as far as a, a competent and, and credible media critic as they come. But because there is a problem in the, in the way that Western reporting is done, the Russian services and their accomplices can seize upon that. You know, so for instance, a factual inaccuracy or a correction posted in the New York Times is proof that the New York Times is no different from RT and Sputnik. When, of course, RT and Sputnik, from the very byline on down to the skirt of the piece, it's all just fabrication. We, we know that you know, Putin will be hosting his postponed Victory Day event, I think next week. And it's, you know, Victory Day, for those that are listening, is, is an event where the Soviet liberation, you know, some would say occupation of Eastern Europe is, is celebrated. One of the things that I've noticed is that historical narratives seem to dominate a lot of the sort of Russian and Kremlin disinformation themes and really dominates domestic propaganda. Why is that? What role does history play in, and why do they keep using going back to history as, as a theme with, uh, with disinformation? Well, I mean, you know, he who controls the past controls the present. So for instance, you know, if, if you can erase the Hitler-Stalin pact and all the preliminaries and the very fact that the Soviet arms industry and the Soviet manufacturing was responsible for keeping the Wehrmacht running uh, right up until uh, Operation Barbarossa. If you can elide all of that, then you have created a narrative whereby Moscow has always been fighting fascism. And it doesn't matter, for instance, that Moscow now hosts neo-Nazi groups and ultra-nationalist Eurasian imperialists who I mean, hold the same views as the Nazis might do on uh, about Jews and blacks and gays and so on. All of that is is just propaganda as far as they're concerned. It's, you know, we won the war, we destroyed Hitler. I mean, I see this, you know, from literal Stalinists on Twitter, born in America, running these blogs. You don't know who's financing the blogs, um, pointing out or saying, uh, oh, yeah, you know, Winston Churchill wasn't responsible for winning World War II. He's no hero. The British didn't do anything. This is all Stalin. False. Uh, it doesn't matter, though. It's a tweet, and it's going to get a thousand and one likes or retweets or whatever. And so, you're, you know, you're going to get these um, ill-educated millennials born after the wall came down who think that everything that they read 
in high school or everything that their own government says is, is lies, uh, imbibing this and regurgitating it. So yeah, it's very important to control the historical narrative and, and to, to try and essentially present everything that has followed to this point as some kind of sinister Western design. You know, and that's not to say, of course, that the United States has not committed human rights abuses, atrocities, war crimes, and the rest of it. It's not to whitewash any of that. It's just to say that the entire thing has been a racket. You have all been conned from day one. And, you know, it's not even about presenting Russia necessarily. I mean, in the case of World War II, it is, you know, Moscow as this great benevolent force which smashed Nazism. But more often than not, uh, the argument is simply about showing that you, your own society, your own culture, your own government is just as corrupt, it's just as, as flawed, is just as black as ours. So please don't lecture us. Don't, don't be moralistic, uh, you know, if we decide to lock up gays in, in, in uh, Novosibirsk. Uh, don't, don't, don't tell us about invading European soil when you went into Iraq you know, et cetera, et cetera. So again, it's, it's, you know, they're, they're, they're painting with primary colors here, but unfortunately, and whether it's just the world is getting dumber and more gullible, which I don't think is the case. I just think that, that back in the nineties, you had this futurist utopian vision of what the internet was going to be. It was going to be this great agora where people could come and sample from the, you know, the marketplace of ideas. Everyone was going to be better educated. People were going to have really searching debates with each other. And, you know, like the dialectic, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. It was all going to be brilliant and wonderful. And now, I mean, it's guys with, you know, frog avatars telling me I belong in a, an oven and that Hitler didn't go far enough, right? I mean, that's the internet. And you see it on Twitter, which has become even more of a cesspit than it used to be. You see it, I think, actually, everyone hates Facebook more, and at least in my sort of coterie. But Facebook, at least, is a controlled or regulated environment, you know? I mean, you can kick people out of the party if you don't like them. You can't do that in other platforms. Uh, so again, out of this anarchy, out of this chaos, out of this sort of almost masochistic kind of blood sport, the Russians just kind of spread it all out and say, oh, ooh, we like that. We, let's use that. Let's take that. It's, it's a smorgasbord. Um, and yeah, you know, of course, you're going to have embassy accounts tweeting all kinds of nonsense about anti-Nazism and anti-fascism, and, but they get dunked on all the time when they do this. And they actually, don't, they don't have to do it. I mean, you know, you just see the ahistorical claptrap that's being peddled by Americans all the time, you know, about the Cold War, about World War II, um, about other ancillary events in the 20th century. And you weep. I mean, if you don't have a well-educated populace, forget about disinformation and propaganda. I mean, the, the rot is, is runs much deeper. Right. So ensuring that our societies are, you know, the, the media literacy, digital literacy and such, that we, that we understand what we're looking at, that we're, we understand the sources. That's, that's one of the ways that, you know, probably the primary way that we can defend ourselves and build resilience against this. Yes. And also elections matter. When you have a, the, the, the leader of your country, and here I speak only for myself, who is recycling lies that have been, if not concocted, then certainly promoted and uh, sold by hostile foreign intelligence services, it becomes very difficult because, you know, th there is a top-down phenomenon in the way that, that news and, and sort of the zeitgeist works in this country. The president sets the national agenda and the international agenda. So if he says, you know, NATO is a racket, then a lot of people are going to go along with that and believe it. And it's going to get litigated, but then it's going to be, well, one side says this, the other side says that. If he believes 
for instance, that, um, you know, all of Ukraine is hopelessly corrupt and therefore not in the U.S. interests to help uh, in terms of national security or military um, deterrence because he's been told that by Putin and Orban, well, then that's going to be litigated and debated. And you're going to have columns saying the president is right and columns saying, no, he's wrong. So again, you you, you complicate things over much when your own commander in chief, your own president is an ignoramus and a buffoon and a dangerous one, you know, and that, that's, that's the first priority here for me. Um, everything else is commentary, as they say. If Trump is reelected, and this goes on for another four years, I don't know what's going to be left in terms of a kind of epistemological infrastructure in this country. I think that the level of demoralization is going to be such that, you know, people are just going to give up. What's the point? You know, I feel that way on a daily basis. You know, I don't weigh into all of these debates anymore because, I mean, what it's, it's, it's completely thankless and it's exhausting and emotionally depleting. So Yuri Bezmanov was, uh, was right. <laughs> essentially. He is right. No, I mean, th- those lectures that he gave, you can Google them or look them up on YouTube. I mean, the only thing that's really changed is the, t- the, the technological equipment that's been used. But everything else is, has, has, much, has, has largely stayed the same. So with, with this election coming up in November, I mean, from, from what you're telling me, I mean, it sounds like the, the situation is sort of hopeless. No, it's not hopeless. I mean, Look, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to get rid of these fever swamps on the internet just because uh, Joe Biden is president. And, and, you know, he's a deeply flawed candidate for president. But again, I, you know, if I'm, if I'm on a life raft and I'm, I'm drowning uh, and the guy who's handing me a, a, a life preserver, you know, has said some silly things or maybe he's lost a step or he can't form a coherent sentence, do I just not want to be saved from, from drowning? And that's the way I see the United States. Now, look, I, you know, there, there are other positives that are taking place in our society. The Black Lives Matter movement, for instance, which you'll notice that Russian state media has completely denigrated in the most racist fashion. That's the one instance where RT and Sputnik side with American cops over protesters, right? Why? Because helping to sow racial divisions, helping to, if not foment a race war in this country, it would just be a gift to the Russian security establishment, right? Because then there's nothing left of America. America tears itself apart. But no, this this movement is long overdue. You're seeing things that should have been done a long time ago, such as the dem- demolition of Confederate iconography at all levels of society, whether it's statues or especially the military. You're seeing caricatures from Aunt Jemima to Uncle Ben's being eradicated. This is probably the, the one social movement, certainly since I've been alive, but probably even before, where public opinion has changed so dramatically and so precipitously, if you look at the polling. So there is now an awareness of systemic racism in America. There is now an awareness that police forces across the country have been militarized. They have been behaving with an overweening fashion. Uh, they have been targeting uh, particularly young black men for far too long. And there is a great deal of potential for social and cultural progress here. Now, are there excesses? Are there things that you and I would look at and sort of roll our eyes and say, well, this is ridiculous? Of course. But every social movement contains excesses. And this one is no different. So I can look at the situation and and I can get very pessimistic. But I can also look at it and say, no, I mean, if you, if, you, if you switch off the internet, if you switch off these kind of ticker tapes of, you know, constant, it's not even information, as I say, like it's just it's noise, and you just kind of survey the landscape, there are, there are causes for hope here. There's reasons to, to, to be optimistic. But for me, again, it, it fundamentally, it comes down to politics. It comes down to elections. You know, if Donald Trump, 
who this very day retweeted a Kremlin-backed disinformation artist. If Donald Trump does this for another four years, then what hope is there from for the bottom up of society? You know, I mean, it's it, we will be so ground down that nothing is really going to matter. Nihilism will be the American. Uh, that's my fear. I don't know. I mean, you you know, in, in 2014, when Peter and I wrote that report, we were looking mostly through a historical lens and then really studying Ukraine. Because Ukraine, whether it's information operations or cyber espionage, Ukraine is, is the laboratory uh, test case for the Kremlin. It always has been. Peter and I, both our views have maybe evolved or shifted since we wrote that report. Uh, you know, Peter wrote a second book on propaganda uh, and its uses and uh, abuses all over the world. But yeah, I, I actually think these things don't work if you get your own house in order. But of course, the, the, the task of getting your house in order is far more arduous and time consuming and expensive than creating some quango to say, you know, we have to stop X, Y, and Z website, or we have to, you know, prevail upon Facebook and Google to deplatform or demonetize X, Y, and Z. You know, that, that, that's the easy stuff. The hard stuff is what nobody really wants to talk about, but is what needs to be done. Which lies within ourselves and making that change, not, not re- like you say, not regulating necessarily social media, but making sure that we ourselves change. And that's, that's a long-term proposition though, isn't it? Like this is, we're not going to be able to fix any of this before, before November. No, it's, it's, and it's going to take generations. I mean, there was a good program. I can't remember. I think it was the BBC uh, on Finland. You know, Finland, obviously, they've had their own entanglements with Russia uh, going back, uh, I mean, not just decades, but even longer than that. Uh, but they, they realized, okay, how do we, what do we have to do here to create a, an historically literate, well-educated, and skeptically-minded electorate? Well, we got to go into kindergartens and to elementary schools, and I guess, you know, high schools as well, and teach kids how to read. And, and by that, I don't mean, you know, how to put words together and, and form word pictures in your mind. I mean, how to read the news, how to look at something that's one of your friends posted on social media and think about the argument and also the, the provenance of the argument before they click like or retweet or whatever. Um, it's that, and, and again, you're, you're, you're talking about things that are going to take a very long time to manifest at the level of, of social cohesion. When, when a TV booker calls me up and say, oh, did you see the latest report on, I say, yeah. So what do we do about it? And I said, well, you know, what do you mean? What do we do? Well, how do we fix it? Like what, what do we need? Do we need an executive order? Do we need an active con? I said, well, all those things are not going to fix the fact that quite a large number of Americans are, are morons. How do you fix that? You know, that's not a policy that, that, that can be switched on and off uh, at a whim. That that's, that takes a long time. And, you know, I mean, it, it begins probably with, financing education and, and, you know, doing a lot of socially progressive things that, you know, have been on the agenda, but get squashed, uh, you know, whenever these, whenever it comes to the fore. It's just, again, you know, we look for band-aid measures when there's an emergency or a crisis. We don't look for the kind of root cause of it all. Right. And this is where we've, you know, run into problems in Canada is that the, the government is, has looked at this just through the, through the lens of elections. The election's coming, we have to fix it. Election's done, no more problem. And so, to get to the point that you're talking about, I mean, that requires a lot of political will. And finding that, I think, is, is a bit of a challenge, don't you think? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, your, your, your former uh, president of Estonia, his, his favorite line was, as we say in Estonia, hell is north. 
my line is the, the farther east you go, the more west you go, at least up to a point, right? I mean, the Baltic states have managed to put a, get a real handle on this. Obviously, that, you know, it's, it's a very bespoke set of circumstances. When you're colonized and occupied by your next door neighbor for decades, and people grow up with a, a, a sense of a longing for their cultural patrimony, and with, the, you know, and I don't use this term lightly the way it's bandied around in the American news cycle, resistance when it really means something. It's much easier to put this into the bloodstream. It's much easier to get this into the curriculum. You know, this is what the Soviets did to us. This is how Soviet intelligence operations work. This is why, you know, we have to be on the lookout for spies and, and penetrations in our own national security apparatus. This is what an active measure consists of. So, you know, small countries with a history of being, having it lorded over them uh, tend to do better at this. I mean, I mentioned Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Now there's backsliding, unfortunately, in some of the Visegrad countries of Central Europe, um, but that doesn't mean that 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 sort of core element, that cultural social element, isn't still there. And so, you know, I, look, I've been saying since 2014, this is the one time where actually, actually, America can be the student and not the, the the teacher. Go abroad in search of ways to combat this stuff and talk to the people who we dismissed, particularly after '89, as being alarmist and paranoid, when in fact they were just being prescient. Um, and, you know, to some degree that's happened, but probably not as much as it needed to do. I mean, look, Marcus, I'm sorry to say, I, I don't have, Auden once said, like, Americans are, are wonderful, idealistic creatures, but they just can't stand it when you tell them there's no answer to the question, right? I don't have an answer to the question. I have several answers, and, and I don't even know that any of them are going to really work. But, you know, people, what do you do about disinformation or propaganda? I, I, I don't know. Maybe this is just who we are. Maybe this is just like, you know, what we have to learn to accept. That's a very dire note to, I suppose, end on, but. <laughs> well, I think you're right, though. And it goes back to the, the piece about education. And, you know, hopefully if the U.S. does go searching for those answers, hopefully they'll take Canada along and, and help us because God knows we, we need it. So listen, my friend, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast and for this chat. It was really great. Keep chatting with you. I mean, your, your background and all of your expertise on this is it's just fantastic. Um, and I encourage all of our listeners to read uh, Michael's report with Peter Ponbaratsev, The Menace of Unreality, and Michael's New York Times bestselling book, ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. Uh, and of course, MLI's own reports on disinformation in Canada, which can be found on MLI's uh, website. Um, Michael, when's your new book coming out? Oh, gosh, when I write it. Uh, <laughs> COVID screwed me up. Uh, having a five-year-old home for, for three and a half months, 24-7, uh, screwed me up. I'm getting back into the the throes of it now, though. So uh, sometime in 2021, I would say. Okay, great. I look forward to it. Thanks again for joining us. Stay safe. And until next time, thank you very much to all of our listeners.